Father, thank you that today we celebrate Jesus' birthday. Ironically, it's his birthday. We are the one that's receiving the gifts. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you, thank you for putting a face to what God is like. God is unmasking himself on Christmas Day. Emmanuel, God descend to us and show us who he is in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Please bless our time together as we come now to read your word and to ask your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Amen. There was a story about an elderly couple. They sat on the front porch one night because it was quite a nice evening. And the old, the old man was overcome with the romance of the evening. And he said to his hard of hearing wife, Say, darling, I'm so proud of you. But she replied by saying, What? <laughs> or if you're an Asian, you say, Huh? <laughs> With any kind of uh, romantic emotion, were immediately, instantly evaporated. <laughs> she, and he repeated himself by saying, I'm proud of you. And she replied by saying, Yeah, I'm tired of you too. You know, more often than not, the case is that over time, the more familiar we are with something, the less fascination we have with it. We get tired of things very quickly. Things that once fascinated us now bring little emotion. And we often say familiarity breeds contempt, but more often than not, familiarity just breeds indifference. And the more we become familiar with something, the less fascination we have. The newness fades and we lose the wonder. And that happens often with us at Christmas time too. We have heard the Christmas story over and over and over and over and over again, and slowly the wonder of what occurred some 2,000 years ago diminishes. It fails to do much for us spiritually. The old, old story has become the old, old story. But today, I'm going to tell you about Christmas story that I am quite certain you have never heard before on Christmas Day at least. It is the story of... Can I have a PowerPoint, please? It is the story of Bathsheba. We have been doing this series called The Women of Advent over the last couple of weeks, tracing the genealogy of Jesus Christ found in the book of Matthew chapter 1. Four women, actually five women were mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus when he turned from the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi to the first book of New Testament. 400 years were silent. That's why you hear the, the lyrics of the song. 400 years they were looking for the Messiah. 400 years they've been waiting for the Messiah, the intertestament period between Old and New Testament, there were 400 years silence. God suddenly was quiet. And so when you turn to the first page of the New Testament, Matthew Gospel, there are four women that was mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and today we want to finish it with Bathsheba. Now, it is necessary, it is necessary and essential for Matthew to begin with genealogy. Of course, those are names there that we find rather boring and names that are difficult to pronounce, but it is absolutely necessary for Matthew to do that because unlike us, the genealogy means a lot to the Jewish people. The Jews paid close attention to their genealogies. I don't even know what my grandmother's name was. To be honest with you, I don't, I don't know her name. She died when I was very little and, and my mother's parents died. So we, I don't even know her name. But not the Jewish people. Whenever land was bought or sold, the genealogical records were consulted to make sure that land belonging to one tribe was not sold to members of another tribe. Genealogy was also crucial in determining the priesthood because the Old Testament says specifically that priesthood has to come from the tribe of Levi. Genealogy also helped determine the line of heirship to the throne. And that is why if you are familiar with Old Testament in Ezra chapter 2, when the Jewish people returned back to the land under King Artaxerxes, they traced back to know who is what. Genealogies were the Jewish people's CV or resumes. And so Matthew starts with the genealogy because he wants to convince the Jewish people as he was writing, especially the Gospel of Matthew, was writing to Jewish crowd. And he wants to convince the crowd that Jesus is the promised Savior, promised Messiah back in Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that Jesus was, is truly the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus was not, not just a Jew. That's not what Matthew is trying to say. But Matthew wants to also establish that Jesus was part, as part of the royal family of David because the Old Testament prophesies that Jesus will come from the line of King David. And so Matthew have that in mind and want to convince the crowd that this Savior is from the line of King David. He was not just a Jew, he was part of the royal family of David. And that is the central purpose of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Because in the New Testament time, Jesus was not the only Messiah claimed by people. There was always this kind of people that came and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. And so, the first thing to establish is, is this Messiah from the line of King David? If he's not, then forget it. He won't be the Messiah. Simple as that. No need to go further than that. If he's not from the line of King David, he's out. And so that is why if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we may miss this part out. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham, even though Abraham was before David, but Matthew deliberately put David first for a simple reason, because he had in mind to say that this Jesus is from the line of King David. And then subsequently, he starts from the verse 2 onward, he starts from uh, 
Abraham and down tracing the line. But in the first verse as an introduction, he said, now this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then today, what we want to talk about is Bathsheba because in this genealogy, it contains four women. Contains four women and then we have covered three. And so on Christmas Day, we want to finish off with this simple, simple short series on the women of Advent by looking at Bathsheba. Most of us, I, I can't say for all, I think most of us are familiar with the story of Bathsheba. The, the rest of the women were mentioned by name. But in verse 16, when Matthew Gospel traced Jesus from the line of King David, Matthew did not mention Bathsheba. This is what Matthew says. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba's name was not there. It just simply says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It is not that Matthew is too embarrassed about Bathsheba that she refused to put his name there. Not at all. In fact, by putting all those women's names is to elevate them. Elevate them because Matthew being an outcast himself ensure that these women are being put into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I think the reason that Matthew simply calls her the wife of Uriah is to remind his readers that she rightly belonged to someone else when King David took her away from Uriah. He, she rightly should be belong to Uriah. So technically speaking, he stole it from Uriah and make Bathsheba his wife. I think, I think, I cannot establish that 100%. I think uh, it is a reminder of a story that is a black mark on the otherwise faithful life of David, Israel's greatest king, a story most Israelites would rather forget about. But I think, I think only, I think Matthew deliberately did it that way. Is also there's another reason, is to say, to the Jewish people, even your greatest king is tainted with sin. Your greatest king, the one that you look up to, is tainted with sin. But I'm going to show you this particular king, this savior that is going to come from this line that's been prophesied and talked about in the Old Testament. This king is a perfect king. This king is not going to rule over physical kingdom per se, he's going to be the king sitting on the throne of your heart. So I think there's another reason why, because all the Old Testament sins are tainted with sins, sins and they are not perfect. And I think Matthew is showing us that we need a saviour who is sinless so as to save the sinful one. Only the sinless one can save the sinful one. Sinful people cannot save themselves. And so here we come to the story of Bathsheba. And it is fascinating to read these stories as I was uh, preparing for this sermon. Uh, many people have their different views about David and Bathsheba. 
But today, although this story is intertwined with King David, but primarily my focus is on Bathsheba, not David. And so there are a lot of other details that I will leave out. Um, you have to read about it on your own. It's fascinating reading. Different people have their take on Bathsheba. Did she know David could see her bathing? Did she assume he was away in battle? Could she have resisted David's advances? Was she simply a pawn in society dominated by men? And if you watch the movie, the uh, Hollywood the epic film of uh, David and Bathsheba paints her as a seductress who knew David would walk the roof, knew the timing, knew that her husband was away and intentionally bathed in the open to lure the king. Some people say, shame on her for bathing on her rooftop. One insisted that she had been a careful, modest woman. Surely, she would have looked around the easily seen adjacent roof, right? Wouldn't you do that? Another complaint that David may be a voyeur, but Bathsheba is an exhibitionist. And others say she was completely innocent and it was all David's fault. After all, she could not say no to the king. So this morning, what I want to do is to just look at the Bible. What does the Bible tell us? Now, what this person, that person. As a pastor, I always go back to God's Word. I cannot trust my own judgment. I cannot trust my own intellect. I can't even trust my own emotions. I trust what the Word of God says. And so today, I want to look at 2 Samuel 11, the story. Let me just unpack this and then uh, we'll take it from there. That's the story. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Job out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It says here that kings usually go off to war. But for some reason, he decided to stay put. Instead of being where he should have been at the head of the troops, David decided to hang back and relax. And we know right away this isn't a good thing. A couple of old sayings come to mind, either hands are the devil's workshop, or boredom is devil's playground. And king relaxing, and when he begins to relax, his mind begins to wander. And they often say, or Sigmund Freud used to say, thoughts are action in rehearsal. Thoughts are action in rehearsal. What you're thinking about, you brew it up, and then eventually it will become a reality. It starts with our mind. And here, this is what happened. And then... Verse 2 says, One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So we can say that Bathsheba was very beautiful as what the Scripture says was very beautiful. Beautiful. Literally, it says in the original word, she was exceedingly good of appearance. 
Some English translations believe that Bathsheba was not just doing her usual daily bath, but it was an act of purification after her menstrual period, which is required by the law in Leviticus. And after David saw that, this is what happened. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. Look at the commentary. Look at this person said, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's almost like telling him, this is out of bound. She belongs to Uriah and she's the daughter of Eliam. So in this instance, the word Bathsheba actually means daughter of oath. Let me show you a little bit about her family tree, all right? Bathsheba, her father is Eliam, or another name is Emil. That is his father. Actually, Scripture tells us quite a lot about Bathsheba's family. We know that her father's name was Eliam. The name simply means people of God which indicates he was a follower of God. His very name declared he was part of the family of God. And then if you read 2 Samuel 23, Bathsheba's father, Eliam, was part of the 30 soldiers, 30 warriors. Out of all the soldiers, he belongs to this 30, inner group of 30 warriors. That was named in Samuel chapter 23. Listing 30 David's mighty men of warriors. These were guys who excelled in virtue and warfare, and they became David's most trusted man. And Eliam, the father of Bathsheba, was mentioned. Bathsheba's father was one of David's mighty warriors. And then, let me tell you another person, which is Ahithophel, which is Bathsheba's grandfather, Eliam's father. He was also very well-known. He served as the king advisor. He was King David's advisor. Always gave advice to King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, it says, Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom, Absalom is David's, one of David's sons, regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. So Eliam was, so Bathsheba's father was one of the 30 inner circle warriors, and her grandfather was David's advisor. And his advice is like as if he's consulting, getting advice from God. His words and wisdom were highly valued by David, if you read through uh, the, the story in 2 Samuel. But unfortunately, if you know the, the ending to the story, unfortunately, Ahithophel eventually turned against uh, David. And many scholars believe it's because of what King David did to his granddaughter. He went against, sided with one of his sons, Absalom, to try to dethrone King David. And then when his advice was not taken, he put things in order and then he committed suicide. So David's sin has consequence. It affects lives. And let me tell you something else about his, her husband, Uriah. It says here Uriah was the Hittite. 
And Uriah, Uriah was also part of the 30 warriors chosen by King David as part of the team of these 30 people. So Uriah, in some sense, are quite close to his father-in-law because they were in the same inner circle, 30 warriors. And it is quite possible that it was Eliam that chose Uriah for his daughter Bathsheba. It is quite possible. We, we cannot be certain of that. But it is quite simple because it's a fine young man. And uh, of course, in the culture, uh, you, you, you introduce because it's a fine young man and, and they work together, they need each other. Uh, so he belongs to, to, to the inner circle as well. And it says that Uriah was, is a Hittite. He was a Hittite and not Jewish by nationality. Who were the Hittites? They were one of the people groups who lived in the land God promised to the Jews. And Abraham actually bought the field and cave where he buried Sarah from this person by the name of Ephron, uh, the Hittite. Uh, Uriah simply means the flame of Yahweh, or my light is Yahweh, which seems to suggest that Uriah, although a Hittite, was probably a converted Jew. They call proselytized Jew. Why would Eliam choose Hittite to be his daughter's husband? Uh, as I said before, Eliam probably knew Uriah quite well and thought him qualified to marry his daughter. And he chose a Hittite speaks volumes to the character he saw in this man. So the wisdom of the, that choices proves itself out as Uriah shows himself to have more character than did David himself. So that's a rough background and the family story of uh, Bathsheba. Let me just carry on because you're going to see, see more of it. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent to David saying, I am pregnant. And having indulged himself, David soon finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant and that's a problem for the king. So like most powerful people who find themselves in trouble, he initiates a cover-up. He brings Uriah home from the field in hopes and encourage him to go back home. In hopes that he will sleep with his wife and believe that the baby is his own. He said, go down to your house. He had a conversation with Uriah. Go down to your house and wash your feet. The king said to his trusted soldier, and he's not talking about getting, you know, just wash. David refuses. I mean, Uriah refuses. And look at this verse. Look at what Uriah replied to David when David said, go home. Take a, take a break. You know, you've been in the field for a number of weeks or months. Go home and take a rest. Look at what Uriah said to King David. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah, they are staying in tents. And my commander Job and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Look at his loyalty. Look at his, 
his allegiance in a sense. How can I, my man, my superior, everybody is in the field and you ask me to go home? I'm not going to do that. Thank you very much. Even though the direct order came from the king himself, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not gonna, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is where David should be, acting with honour. So David realises that he has to get Uriah out of the way in order to try and cover up, to quell the, the scandal. So he had another plan. This is what he did. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep in his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. The two plans didn't work out. Third plan, plan C. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Oh, this is horrible. This is horrible. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David adds murder to the list of his deadly sin. He committed the last four of the five commandments. And then he went and got Bathsheba over to be his wife. But that's not all. The story doesn't end there. He says here, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. NIV said displeased the Lord, which is rather kind. Other versions say what David did was evil in the Lord's eye. Now he can have Bathsheba for himself, but here it says what David has done was evil in the Lord's eye. Interestingly, throughout the account, not a single blame was laid on Bathsheba. At least scripture never mentioned. The all the faults was on King David. And God knew you can hide from man, but you can't hide from God. And God, as we know, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sent prophet Nathan to confront King David. And the prophet Nathan came up with a story, a parable. He used a parable about a rich man and a poor man who had nothing but one little eerie lamb. The poor man fed and cared for the ewe lamb in his home like it was a daughter to him, Nathan said. Until one day the rich man didn't just take the ewe lamb, he cooked it and he fed it to his guests. 
And the divine parable points to King David as aggressor and predator and to Bathsheba as the beloved and vulnerable lamb. He paints the picture of a young wife cherished by her husband, powerfully taken away and consumed by him. And the child that was, re- that, that was the result of this affair dies after a few days. David's sins has led to destruction, death and grief for him and for the wife of Uriah. And he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And to his credit, we're not going to unpack it, to his credit, David undergoes a long period of repentance. Famously, you go back and read Psalms 51, Psalms 32, you can see David's heart of repentance before God. But God forgives, but you will always suffer the consequence of what your sin entails. The family will go downhill from then on. The sons of all these wives will go to war with one another over the throne. There will be incest, there will be rape, there will be murder, there will be mayhem. David will find himself on the run again. He will die an old man with many regrets, all because he used power for his own purposes. So that's in, in a, in a nutshell, uh, uh, Bathsheba's story. What was her legacy? What was Bathsheba's legacy? You know, this story is a story of hope for victims. David is the perpetrator. Bathsheba is the victim. She has been violated. Her beloved husband has been killed and now finds herself as a kind of trophy wife for the king because David has allowed eight to ten wives. This would be just another sad tale except, except for the fact that God is present. When God is in the equation, the equal will be different. When God is in the equation of your life, it will equal something beautiful. But He must be in the equation before something beautiful can come out of it. So this would just be another sad tale except for the fact that God is present. And even in the midst of the most horrendous, horrific consequences of human sin, God is going to make something beautiful out of this. God doesn't bless their action, but God show mercy and able to use the mess to bake a masterpiece out of the mess. That is God. He specializes in that. He doesn't bless the action, but whatever mess that people have created, He's able to use it, move and change something out beautiful. As the Bible says, He makes beauty for ashes. Did you know that two of Bathsheba's children are in Jesus' lineage? Not just Solomon. There's another one. I'll show you, all right? 
Let me finish this part first. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, which means peace. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name Solomon, another name called Jedidiah, which means the beloved of God. Peace and beloved of God. Solomon means peace. Jedidiah means the beloved of God. And God would eventually pick Solomon to carry on the kingly line of David in keeping with the covenant he made with him in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David went on with Bathsheba to conceive another three children other than Solomon. David reigned in Jerusalem 33 years, and these were the children born to her, to, there, to him there. Shammah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. These four were by Bathsheba, daughter of Emil. Nathan was there. Can you imagine? This is a, a tribute, isn't it? That Nathan is not a prophet Nathan. But interestingly, they name the youngest son as Nathan after the prophet. That shows volume of their, their, rest, their reverence and respect for Prophet Nathan for confronting him, for speaking truth to him, especially when he was a king. Uh, we should value people who dare to speak truth to us, which nowadays in the political uh, age, we don't dare to speak truth anymore. Political correctness age. But we should value those people who dare to speak truth to us. And so Nathan was there. I mention this only because I want to show you in Luke chapter 3 genealogy. Matthew shows the genealogy line of Joseph, but Luke shows the genealogy line of Mary. And here it says this, the son of Melia, and he do it the, the reverse way. The son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, you can read that. So two, two of his sons was mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And another of his legacy, as we know, that King Solomon wrote many, many chapters in the book of Proverbs. And of the books in the book of Proverbs, the most famous probably of all is which book? Come to Mother's Day. Proverbs 31. And it begins with this. The sayings of King Lemoine and inspired utterance his mother taught him. There was a huge studies on who is this King Lemoine. The only time there was mention in the Bible, that's it. Most people suspect that it is probably King Solomon, nickname given by his beloved mother, Bathsheba. King Lemoa. An inspired utterance his mother taught him. So his mother gave a lot of influence to King Solomon, but he was not... Uh, all the advice were not all taken. Uh, and particularly in this part, he says this, bearing in mind her own experience, 
being a victim. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. He reminded his, her son. For the rights of all who are destitute. You as a king, you must do that. That is what uh, Bathsheba said to his, her son, King Solomon. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor. Defend the rights of the needy. And then you can read about the, the ending part of uh, the, the, the part of a noble wife and all that, which, which a lot of uh, influenced by Bathsheba being his mother. Well, God specializes in turning a mess into a masterpiece. God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph and a victim into a victor. That is God. That is God. That is Jesus' master stroke of building lives all over again. Let me finish off with uh, just quickly three things that I want to mention as a conclusion of why Matthew include these four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I think there are many answers to that. I come up with three of that. The first one, I think he did that is to send a message to self-righteous people. I mentioned briefly uh, in my previous sermon on Rahab, he sent it to send a message to self-righteous people because Jewish people, they are very external. They are very external. Everything needs to... Perfect. It is the external that is important. Let people look at us, that we are godly, we are good, we are, you know, all that. Uh, so Matthew was written especially to the Jews. Many of their leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were self-righteous and very judgmental towards others. They truly thought they deserved eternal life. And what a shock it would be to read this genealogy because it's filled with liars, murderers, Thieves, prostitutes, adulterers are all in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Not a pretty picture. The least was a stinking rebuke to that kind of judgmental self-righteousness that Matthew wanted to cut across to them. There's this poem says this. Let me read to you. Fascinating poem. Say, I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, nor by the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the, al the alcoholics, the trash. There stood the kid from my seventh grade who, who kind of bullied me. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, Herbert, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. What's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why everyone is so quiet? So somber. Give me a clue. And the angel said, Hush, child. They're all in shock. No one thought they'll see you. 
He did it to send a message to sell righteous people. Secondly, I believe why Matthew put, include these four women. He did it so that God's grace might be richly displayed. When you read the stories of these four women and of other men as well, you aren't supposed to focus on the sin. You're meant to focus on the grace of God. The hero of this story is God. His grace shines through the blackest of human sin as He chooses flawed men and women and places them in Jesus' family tree. So I think Matthew deliberately did that. He did it so that God's grace will be magnified. And of course, it's to prepare them, prepare the reader as they read chapter 2, chapter 3, up down to chapter 28, is to tell them, prepare them mentally, emotionally, what this Messiah, what this Savior is going to be like. So right at the start, he make it clear, he pitched the expectation of what this Messiah, what this Savior is going to be like. And finally, before your turkey burn in the oven, he did it so that we would focus on Jesus. He did it so that we would focus on Jesus. This genealogy is in the Bible to let us know he has a background, a lot like yours and mine. He didn't come to call the righteous, but He came to call the sinners to repentance. He said the Son of Man did not come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Matthew, right at the start, wants us to focus on Jesus. Christ was born in the first century, and yet He belongs to all centuries. He was born a Jew, yet He belongs to all races. He was born in Bethlehem, yet He belongs to all countries. This Christmas is about God putting on a face. Or the Archbishop this morning say, God unmasking Himself to reveal to humanity who He is by coming to us, tell us this is God. This is God. Putting a face to God. This Christmas, Christmas is Jesus, God putting a face in the person of Jesus Christ, coming to us. And so this Christmas, may we look at Jesus. There was a story in America recently, just a couple of weeks, maybe last week, about this, this, this person. Don't know if it's a she or a he. We don't know. He's only mentioned this angel walk into the departmental store, Walmart, first thing in the morning, walk to the lay-by counter, or in America they call lay-away, and this person asked the clerk, how many items do you have on your lay-by? And how much does it cost? The clerk totaled up $65,000. US And this person said, I want to pay for it. And he paid for it and wrote a message and said, 
tell all those people who have laid by here this message. I love you. God loves you. God bless you. And Merry Christmas. And when the message was read to one of them, this person said, the emotional type that I am, I just broke down. I just started crying. That restores my faith. It's like a Christmas miracle. My friend, there's a greater gift for you this Christmas, not just on item that is on your lay-by, but I want to tell you that the greatest gift that you will ever receive will never be found under a Christmas tree. It is far too valuable to be stored in any other place but in the depths of your heart. It is far too valuable to be stored in any other place other than the, in the depths of your heart. And that is the gift of Jesus to you. I pray and I hope that you will receive Him. You will make Him your Lord this Christmas if you have not done it so. And if you have this Christmas story been so old to you, may this child of Bethlehem be born again in you this Christmas. Thank you, Lord. Holy child of Bethlehem, as the hymns say, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for coming to us to show us who you are. Thank you that you embrace all of us. We all have made mistakes in our lives. If we were to share it to everyone, we will be too embarrassed. But we thank you for your grace. Oh, how beautiful, how beautiful is your grace, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Today, we celebrate the reality of your presence in my life. We celebrate your love, your life, your death, your resurrection. And as we celebrate, Lord, help us to be God with skin. God, we skin on to those in need around us. Thank you that you came to us. May we also will reach out to others. Open our eyes and let us see them as you see them. Help us not to judge too fast, too quick. Help us to realize that you love them and you save them. Thank you, Lord. May this song that we sing again, Emmanuel, God with us, reminds us again of your love. Thank you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we repeat the song that we sang just now, Emmanuel, uh, God with us. What hope we hold this starlit night 
joy abide within you. May the blessing of peace rest upon you. May the blessing of love flow out through you. May all the blessings of the Lord be yours at this Christmas and in the new year. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.